the National Archives podcast series, The Last Slave Market, Dr. John Kirk and the Struggle to End the African Slave Trade, presented by Alastair Hazel. This event was recorded on the 12th of January, 2012, at the National Archives, Kew. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to take you back to May 1872. I want to take you to the island of Zanzibar. Some of you may know of the island of Zanzibar and the city which exists today much as it did then, uh, off the coast of East Africa, uh, some miles off the coast of East Africa. And Zanzibar then, this is a contemporary print from the 1870s, Zanzibar today looks much as it did then. May 1872, a doctor, a British doctor, a Scots doctor, a man called John Kirk, was down at the port and he wrote back to his superiors in London and in India, Never since coming to Zanzibar have I seen so many large dows come in crowded with slaves and seldom have the slaves imported been landed in a worse state. These were slaves that came from the hinterland of East Africa. Later I will show you a map. They came in abused, emaciated, often marked, treated like animals, in a terrible state. They were taken to Zanzibar into various buildings around here where they were collected. And later on they were sent in tens of thousands up by Dal, that is the, the Indian Ocean craft, sea craft, which again I'll show you a photograph shortly. They were sent up to the Middle East, to the Red Sea, to the Persian Gulf, to places that we know today as Saudi Arabia, uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, up into Turkey, up into the Muslim hinterland, because in the 19th century the Muslim world depended for its labor entirely on slaves and by then black African slaves to handle work in the households, to fish for pearls off the Gulf, to build, and for a lot of the artisan and trade works that went on in the Muslim cities of Turkey, of Persia, and of Arabia. Very different, ladies and gentlemen, from what was happening in West Africa. I want you to visualize Zanzibar at the time. You can see here a city that was remarkably ordered, Structurally, it was a big city. It was the biggest city in the, East Indian, in the Indian Ocean, in the east of the Indian Ocean. It was actually in those terms, in those days, had about 250,000 people. It was enormous. It was a trading entrepôt. It was as large as the city of Karachi, which was one of the largest ports of India. And it fueled it. It, it was the center of a huge amount of trade in the Indian Ocean. It was a city that, from the distance, looked very beautiful. You can see here the fort, which was originally built by the Portuguese. Uh, you can see a minaret of a mosque there. In the background, in this print, you can see just the, the, the seaport and some uh, ships here as well. But it was a city that was also extraordinarily filthy. The explorer Sir Richard Burton wrote, and he was writing in 1856, Corpses float upon the water. The shore is a cesspool. It is a clean show concealing uncleanness. There was no sewage. It wasn't a modern city. There was no sewage in the town. And so the filth and the dirt and the dead bodies, the effluvia, if you like, from 250,000 people living there flowed down through the city into the shore. The beach was a, a, a effectively a mass of sewage, of dead bodies, of filth. <coughs> because of this decay, at night, gases came out of the water, came out of the mud, and they lit up into blue flares that would dance up and down the beach. And it was said that these were the ghosts of slaves who had departed, had been killed, had died on the shore. That's quite an evocative um, statement. 
But the real point I want to make before moving on to the next slide is this was 1872. Now those of you who know your British history will know that there was a tremendous campaign to abolish slavery and slave trading in the early, 19, in the early 18th century in Britain, in England. Names like Wilberforce, Clarkson are big names in this country. By 1807, and then by 1837, slave trading had been abolished, had been made illegal throughout the British Empire. Yet here in the 1870s, tens of thousands of slaves were being sent from East Africa up into the Muslim world. Yet Zanzibar was a client state of the British Empire. The Indian Ocean was a place dominated by the fleets of the British Empire, and particularly the British Empire in India. Post-1815, Britain was the global superpower. The comparison will be America today. Yet this traffic went on well into the late the last quarter of the 19th century. And when I wrote this book, when I studied this book, that was one of the questions I asked myself. Why did this take place? Why was this happening? Why did this traffic continue for so long? This here is another contemporary slide of Zanzibar. Uh, you can see again the fort, still there today. You can see, this is a place called Shangani Point, where many of the overseas consulates and agencies, America, Germany, Britain, and so forth, had their positions. Again, many of these buildings survived. And here you can see Dao's ocean-going craft from the Gulf. And here, very importantly, a, an ocean-going schooner from either America, Germany, or the UK. Again, this was a big, big mercantile maritime place, a country, Zanzibar. It was uh, part of an empire that had been started by Omanis in the Middle East, but it was a big, rich country. And the reason Zanzibar was rich, ladies and gentlemen, was not because of slaves. Zanzibar was fabulously rich in terms of the day because of this stuff here, ivory. It was rich in ivory because our forefathers craved this stuff. Ivory was the luxury good of the mid-19th century in Germany, Britain, and later America. We couldn't get enough of it. We wanted it because of billiards. Middle-class people in Britain, wealthy people in Britain, had to have a billiard table. Billiard balls were made of ivory. Cutlery. The cutlers of Sheffield to took 250 tons of this stuff every year. Knick-knacks round the house. Lots of carvings. Look at a picture of a Victorian middle-class luxury dining room, sitting room, whatever you like to call it. And you'll see lots of ivory stuff all over the place. Because of this, the prices went up and up and up. And the best ivory came from deep in the African continent. It was soft, it was carvable. It came from the headwaters of the Congo around there. And the exit point was Zanzibar. So the Zanzibar merchants were rich, really rich. And they knew it. They sent these big caravans into the interior, away for years and they came back with tons of ivory. But those caravans, ladies and gentlemen, needed porters. They needed people to fight the wars out there. They needed harems. Zanzibar trader didn't travel without all his luxuries and his equipment. That included his harem. Making up all these people were the slaves. A caravan going to the interior often would have thousands and thousands of people. And the leaders of the caravan might only be 10, 20, 30, Omanis, Arabs, Swahili from the coast. The rest would be slaves. Slaves who made this whole venture possible. And so you had slaves and ivory really in a funny symbiosis 
continued together that drove this tremendous trade throughout the 19th century. Slaves really were power. Slaves really were an indication that a man was rich. So Zanzibar not only was a tremendous market for slaves itself, it was also the point where the slaves, as I said earlier, were sent on to the Middle East, to those markets in the Middle East, those markets in the Muslim world, where slaves were desperately needed. And Zanzibar was, by the late, the last quarter of the 19th century, or the second half of the 19th century, one of the very few places in the modern world where slaves in quantity could be found. What you have here, and this again was drawn in the 1870s by a British soldier, what you have here is the Zanzibar slave market. It was a scruffy place. It wasn't like, if any of you have been to West Africa, it wasn't like the, the slave castles you see in places like Ghana, places like Cape Coast and elsewhere. This was a pretty scruffy place uh, with large numbers of manacled human beings graded, chained, held together, and they were graded according to type, according to health, according to effective desirability. This was a market. And so children who were actually quite desirable but pretty expendable were four or five dollars. A young man might be 17, 18 dollars, depending on the time of the year, depending on how the market was going. And a woman, and you see some women in here, women were fantastically valuable because, again, they were material for the harem. And so the women tended to be taken aside, put behind an awning, where the buyer could come and have a look closely, inspect the, the, female per the purchase of a female slave. And for visitors, and British and European visitors to Zanzibar always stopped off to have a look at the slave market. There was a little bit of a frisson there of almost pornographic activity, if you like. They never ceased to be excited by how the women were taken aside and the slave purchaser would then go into the, the awning and have a good close look. It was also a different place than the Zanzibar slave market. It was the center of what Zanzibar was. When the trade on the mainland was going well, the slave market was going well. And you had well-to-do Zanzibaris who were tended to be Swahili or Indians, people from India or, uh, or Arabs. They would come through the slave market in the morning and they'd put bets on the prices of slaves and they would look at the jugglers and they would look at the entertainers and they would listen to the slave auctioneer chanting away prices in the background, a bit like any other auction. Uh, it was a kind of leisure place as well, uh, right at the centre of the island and it was a place where really Zanzibar took its temperature. In the 19th century, there was a, a theory that Muslim slave trading was kind of okay. It wasn't, when I say a theory, I mean a theory in the West, in places like Britain, that it wasn't as evil, as unpleasant, and as culpable as the kind of slave trading that took place across the Atlantic to Brazil or to the one time to the states of North America. The first British agent, this was an agent on behalf of the East India Company from India, the first British agent that came to Zanzibar, he was a political appointee, was a man from the Middle East, a man called Hamilton, he spent his life in the Middle East. He spent his life in the Middle East and in India. He was a tough guy. He had seen a lot of suffering. He came down to Zanzibar and he was astonished at the suffering that these people endured. He wrote back to his superiors in India, in Bombay, and most of his letters are pretty dry. They're here in this archive. They're pretty dry, they're pretty functional, they're pretty what you expect from a man of his kind, uh, uh, an operator out there in the sticks. But on one of his early letters, he writes, and I quote, 
I fancy in no part of the universe is the misery and human suffering these wretched slaves undergo while being brought here and until they are sold, exceeded. They are in such a wretched state from starvation and disease that they are sometimes not considered worth landing and are allowed to expire in the boats to save the dollar a head duty, the duty at the customs port. And the bodies of these poor people are eaten on the beach by the dogs of the town. No one will bury them. It's a remarkable passage because it really leaps up from the page. This man, this tough guy, uh, I'll take you through his history, but he was a, he was a, a, a very robust individual, was appalled at the source of the slave trading, just what kind of suffering and what kind of terrible abuse of humankind went on. What we have here is a contemporary photograph of a seagoing dhow, sometimes called a bugala, which literally means a sea mule. These boats were extraordinary. You still see them today in East Africa. You see them in the Gulf. Doesn't, this photograph doesn't bring out quite the high stern and the low prow of the, of, the, of, the, of the boat. It shows you this huge lanteen sail, and it gives you an idea of the kind of speed they went and do indeed go at. These boats have been trading up and down the Indian Ocean, east of the Indian Ocean, for time immemorial. They've been going up and down, trading between the Middle East and the East African coast for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And there's a particular reason, and the reason is summed up in two words, the trade winds. The monsoons come down from this part of the world, the Middle East, here, you can see the Gulf of Aden, you can see the Red Sea, and up around here beyond the map, this is the contemporary map, beyond this map is the, um, is the Persian Gulf. The trade winds at the beginning of the year blow down here, they still do, all the way down here, and they eventually peter out around the island of Zanzibar, which tells you a lot of why Zanzibar was so important. And in the second half of the year, this great circle of wind and current moves back again up here, right across towards India and back again. Those boats have been following those trade winds, carrying commodities, sharks, meat, fish, coconuts, things of that nature, and returning with the commodities of the East African coast for thousands of years. And in doing so, they nurtured, encouraged, and contributed to this trade in slaves. Slaves were another commodity. This was, again, very different from the West African slave trade, which was, comparatively speaking, a modern phenomenon, 17th, 18th century onwards. Slaves were a commodity. There's another point, ladies and gentlemen. The people that came down on this extraordinary circle of trade wind activity, they naturally regarded the trade winds as the work of God. They naturally regarded it as part of the order of being. They'd been coming up and down here for, as I said, thousands of years. They also regarded the taking of slaves as part of God's will. Indeed, the first ruler of Zanzibar said Allah had granted Arabs the right to take slaves from Africa. It had been granted. And if you read the Quran, slavery is sanctioned by the Holy Book. So for them, this whole activity was not a big deal. This was what went on. This was how the world was. The coming down of these Daos, this activity, was so deeply embedded, it became almost a ritual. I spent a lot of my time, early life, in East Africa, and I remember even in the 1960s at Mombasa, it's a town here, some of you may know the East African coast, the little town of Mombasa up there, well, it's a big city today. But I remember in the early part of the year when the first fleet of Daos came in, 
the tremendous expectation as people came down onto the shore, came down onto the harbour and looked out to sea, to see that first white sail appearing over the horizon. And when the boat comes in, when it came in, the, the expectation was fantastic. People came down onto the beach, the ladies in their buoy-buoys, their black voluminous garments, partly veiled, the men in there with their long white tanzus, tremendous amount of clapping, tremendous amount of ululating, tremendous, almost a hysteria of expectation. And as the first boat came in, the guys in the front of the boat started to dance, actually danced on the boat, beating the drums, singing, dancing, laughing. It was it really coming together, of a great sort of ritual of excitement. And if you can imagine that going back a hundred years, this too was part of this whole trade, this whole slave-taking activity. It was part of God's order. It was part of the way life was. And here we have, as I said, the Indian Ocean. One further point, I think, to mention about this map, and that is Zanzibar really was a pivot between this activity that went on up here and down there, but also Zanzibar controlled by virtue of its position and by virtue of the protection given it by the British fleet, and I'll come back to that, Zanzibar controlled a commercial empire that was truly vast. There were Zanzibaris, Zanzibar traders, in every African court, in every kingdom, in every tribal center, in an area that extended right up to Lake Turkana, which I can't find, but somewhere up here, across here right up the headwaters of the Congo, right the way down to present-day Malawi, Lake Nyasa, Lake Malawi, this huge area. We're talking about a subcontinent. There were Zanzibaris there, not large numbers, that controlled the trade of that whole subcontinent. And this Zanzibar was the exit point. I mentioned that Zanzibar had a control on this empire, and the reason, and this is really the answer I finally came to after doing this research, and the reason was the British Empire. The Indian Ocean was a lake controlled by the British. The fleet out of Bombay, and when I say the British, I mean the British in India. The British in India, our forefathers, some of our forefathers, in India controlled a subcontinent. This was the jewel in the crown, as some of you will recall. And to them, the Indian Ocean, control of the Indian Ocean, was vital. But ladies and gentlemen, they really, these guys sitting in Calcutta and sitting in Bombay, really weren't too bothered about a bit of slave trading here in the, in the east coast of Africa. In the 1840s, Lord Palmerston, British Foreign Secretary, a very strong anti-slave trader, inquired of his colleagues in India what they were doing about slave trading in the East African coast. A lot of letters crossed hands, a lot of research was done, and the responses which came back from British officers in India and British officers in the Gulf up here was lots of slave trading going on, lots of it. But what's the problem? What's the issue? Why are you so worried about this? The British officer from Aden wrote in a very striking letter back to Parliament, back to this country, a letter which, again, I think is a remarkable letter. He said that he thought the trade of their forefathers, those are the people, the Arab people in the Gulf, was something that was a perfectly legitimate right. He went on to say that slaves provided the people of the Gulf with their food, attached servants, their bodyguard, the maintenance of their domestic economy, and the tutors of their children, and indeed the captains of their vessels are often slaves. He then went on with an ironic, but I don't think he was being ironic, comment, their harems are filled with chosen beauties from the Swahili tribes, and much of their domestic satisfaction arises from the idea of possessing an ample establishment of this kind. Sir, 
an attractive slave girl is considered the most complimentary present, 1850. So to the people running the British Empire in India, this really was not a big deal. If I can just take you back to where I started this talk, this was really the answer, why this trade continued for so long. Because the dominant power in the Middle East and the Far East, the British Empire in India, was not disposed to do anything about it. Zanzibar, Zanzibar's sister country, Oman, they were ruled by the same family. They were indispensable to stability in the Middle East. This was real polity. The people that controlled the track up into the Gulf, people that controlled Zanzibar, were vital to the stability of India, to the stability of the British fleets coming through, for coaling, for defence, and slave trading was really a secondary issue. I'm going to take you on now to a gentleman who occupies the bulk of this book. <coughs> Forgive me, but I've given you quite a lot of background here. This man is called John Kirk. We met him in the first slide when he was down at the port in Zanzibar and I read out one of his letters back to his superiors in Bombay. This guy Kirk, a phenomenal man and really, if I can leave you with anything today, it is what a great man this was who has been largely, for whatever reason, overlooked in history, overlooked in the history of this country. He was brought up in some poverty in the little village of Barry in, in, uh, in Forfa, in Fife, in Scotland. He was very clever. He went on to Edinburgh University. He got a first-class degree there as a doctor. He was a botanist. He was a remarkable linguist. He traveled. He was a contemporary of Lister, the epidemiologist. And he traveled out to, to Crimea to join the forces there as a doctor. But he really comes onto the scene when, in 1856, he was asked to join Dr. Livingstone on his expedition up the Zambezi in the late 50s and early 60s, up the Zambezi into Central Africa. Kirk joined Livingstone as a doctor and also as a botanist. Botany was his abiding hobby, his abiding passion. That expedition, ladies and gentlemen, was a catastrophe. It's often not said just what a catastrophe it was. Livingstone was a disastrous leader. Livingstone was a remarkably selfish man. I apologize if there are people here who are passionate admirers of Livingstone. He was a great man. He was also a remarkably selfish man. Everything that went, on, went wrong with that expedition was blamed on others. He refused to take any blame for himself. Many, many people died. Many people suffered. It was a catastrophe, and Livingstone never really was censured for it. The one man that remained with that expedition right from beginning to end and stuck with it and on whom Livingstone became very dependent, was this guy, Kirk. They explored the Zambezi and a tributary of the Zambezi called the Shiri, and there they found huge quantities of slavers and slave trading taking place. We're talking about present-day Malawi. It was called Nyasland then. The people took the slaves from that settled, prosperous area up through Mozambique to the coast and then up to Zanzibar. One thing that Kirk learnt on that expedition was not to be naive about slave trading. He learned that it was incredibly embedded in the practice of people, the peoples, the cultures, the tribes, the activities of Central and East Africa. I won't go into the details of that, of that now, but the simple, if you like, missionary endeavor of slave trading is bad, we're going to stop it, we're going to tell these guys that Christ forbade it, didn't work. So when later, in the mid-1860s, late-1860s, Kirk came to Zanzibar, where he did as a doctor, as the medical officer to the British agency. He came not as a naive man. He came not as an ingenuous individual. He came realizing what he was getting into. He came with his wife, who was a remarkable woman, a very tough woman, 
who went all the way out to Zanzibar to get married to him and got married on the boat on her arrival. And there they spent many, many years. This is the British Agency in Zanzibar. Still there today, it's a restaurant. Behind it, it's slightly different. There's the beach, it's called Livingston's Restaurant. And behind it is a courtyard, and above there are the rooms where Kirk lived with his wife for over 20 years. In that agency or consulate, Kirk read the bound correspondence of the agents that had been in Zanzibar for the previous 20 years. There have been seven of them. And it doesn't make pretty reading. They're bound in leather, the letters. They're letters from Zanzibar to London and letters from Zanzibar to Bombay. The copies of those letters are here in this archive here, and I've read them. And they tell a really a very depressing and very miserable and very gruesome story. They tell a story of how Britain, through its empire in Bombay, sent out agents to this place to look after, to look over, to mine, to shadow the ruler of Zanzibar, and how in each case the agent would be sent out to Zanzibar, as I mentioned earlier on, tough guys, guys that had been around in the Middle East. This was, these weren't softies in any way. They weren't liberals in any way. And on arriving in Zanzibar, one after the other, these guys were horrified at what they found. They'd seen slaves in the Middle East integrated into families. They'd seen slaves being looked after by benevolent masters. They arrived in Zanzibar and saw just what was going on at the heart of the slave trade, where slaves were acquired in inverted commas. They saw the suffering. They saw the brutality. Just to mention, in parenthesis, one aspect of this, large numbers of the slaves were young boys. Eunuchs were terribly valuable in the Middle East. Boys were sent from Zanzibar to secret places in Sudan and in the Yemen, and there they were castrated. The operation was horrendous. 90% of them died. But the one, the 10% that survived, their prices went up by, 100, by several hundred percent, so it was worth doing. It was a brutal business. These guys came to Zanzibar. They were horrified. The letters showed them writing back to their superiors saying, we've got to do something about this. We really have to do something about this. After all, we are representing the most powerful nation in the world, the most powerful nation in the world's history. Zanzibar's tiny. Why don't we do something about this? And in every instance, their masters in Bombay said, get on with your job. Forget it. This is not important. That was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was as I mentioned to you earlier on, Zanzibar was a diseased, filthy place. Europeans, Westerners couldn't take it. In every case, these guys, after a couple of years, two or three years, found themselves stricken down by disease and either dying or having to be ferried out quickly. Now you can imagine that to the Zanzibaris, this wasn't chance. You can imagine, you're the Zanzibar court, you're the Zanzibar traders, you're the guys in Zanzibar, and this Westerner comes in and he says, You've got to stop slave trading. God has said it. And guess what? Within a couple of years, he's struck down by disease and has to be taken out. It's quite clear to them. Their God said it's right. The Christian God said it was wrong. Game, set, match. There's a remarkable event. A man called Rigby in 1858, he was one of the agents, came down to the Derba room, the big audience chamber of the Sultan, then ruler of Zanzibar, and he harangued him and said, Providence has made me and my people the instrument to prevent slave trading in your country, in the Indian Ocean. You have to stop it. I am an instrument for doing this. And the advisor to the then ruler of Zanzibar listened to him patiently, and after he finished, in the audience chamber that still is there in Zanzibar, in the Sultan's palace, he then said, Mr. Rigby, very courteously, you've got it wrong. Actually, slave trading has gone on since the time of Noah. 
a man that you revere in your book and that we revere in ours. It will go on long after you and I are dead. There is nothing you can do to stop it. It's part of the world's order. He knew what he was saying. Rigby, six months later, almost died and had to be evacuated from the island. So that's the context. Kirk read this stuff. He read these letters and he got to know the history. And it was, as I said, a depressing history. When Kirk was there, very shortly after he arrived, this man here, pretty self-satisfied individual, became ruler of Zanzibar. He's a man called Sultan Bargash. Bargash was his name. And he tried twice to take the throne of Zanzibar by force, and he managed to get the throne by intrigue shortly after Kirk arrived. He was actually a friend of Kirk's. And when he got into power, it was by dint of being supported by the British and by dint of being supported by a group of people called Matawas, and they were Muslim fundamentalists of a kind that we're quite familiar with today. Bangash, after he came to power, repudiated all agreements he had with the British and stayed very strongly with his fundamentalist, his Islamist, if you use today's terms, supporters. And he did that because, as I think I mentioned, at that time, slave trading was really a fundamental tenet to Islamic and Muslim belief at the time. And the Matawas, his supporters, were very, very strongly against all Western influence in their traditional ways, and they hated Britain, and they hated everything Britain stood for, and they hated the whole concept of modernization. So Bagash was in, uh, was in a fairly strong position, and because Kirk was his friend, he was in, in an even stronger position. Because in the mid-1860s, the last agent from Britain, the last British agent in Zanzibar, was evacuated. And the Indian Empire, the guys in Calcutta and Bombay, couldn't find anybody else to take the job. In fact, they appointed a guy in uh, Aden, and the man got so depressed, he walked outside and shot himself. He wasn't going to go to Zanzibar, because Zanzibar was a death sentence. So our friend Kirk, who was the doctor, was appointed as the interim agent. He knew he would never be a permanent agent. He wasn't from India. He got none of the background, the training of the Indian Empire civil service. He had no support from India. He was just holding the position. Bagash was delighted. His friend, who was a kind of locum, as Kirk called it, a kind of interim position, was the British agent. Nothing was going to change. Slave training was going to go on forever. For Kirk, our doctor friend, this was a trap. This was a catastrophe. By then, he had a family. There was no way back to Britain. He couldn't get a job in Britain. He spent 10 years in Africa. Nobody was going to employ him as a your local friendly GP. He needed the money. He had no support. He could do nothing apart from collect a few flowers. It was very difficult. He didn't succumb to despair. He didn't go under. He was actually a much cleverer, much tougher guy than that. He did something that perhaps none of us here would have done. He bit his tongue. He said nothing. He didn't preach to the Zanzibaris about the evil of slave trading. He just got to know them. He was a master of the various languages. He got to know all the people there. He got to know the key traders. He became the trusted guy on the island. He was scrupulously honest. He wasn't corrupt. When people came with problems, he was the guy that sorted them out. He even on occasion defended Zanzibaris in certain commercial conflicts against British shippers, against the Royal Navy, because there was a small court in Zanzibar. He became the one person that they trusted in Zanzibar over the years. And because of that, and it's in his diaries in Edinburgh, because of that, he learned more about the slave trade in Zanzibar than anybody outside the Zanzibar community had ever done before. He knew the main slave traders. He knew the prices that they paid. He knew when the ships left and knew where they went to. He knew the times they left. He knew how they evaded 
the British cruisers who were against slave trading. He knew even the tribes of people that made up the slave trading activities, the slaves, the slaves that went on the boats. He was aware of the commercial context of this whole operation. He became a person who was increasingly the advisor to the Sultan, because the Sultan trusted him. The slave trade in Zanzibar was completely out of control by, we get, by the time we get to the 1870s. And I'll give you an idea of just how profitable and how out of control it was. A letter in the archives here from the Sheikh of Abu Dhabi to the ruler of Zanzibar reads as follows. The ruler of Zanzibar had written the Sheikh of Abu Dhabi and said the traders coming down from the Gulf are increasingly violent. They caused havoc in my town. They steal slaves. The slave trade is really beyond something I can control. I want you in Abu Dhabi to help me control this. The Sheikh of Abu Dhabi wrote back. He said, my brother, we did warn these traders and we sent people to tell them, but it will afraid have little effect. The gains are so enormous from this slave trading that it is hopeless to think of stopping them. With ten baskets worth of dates that a man now gets on credit in the Gulf, he can get 20 slaves in Zanzibar worth $1,000. God is indeed great. You may punish them if you like, but if you do not punish them, you had better leave them alone. So that was the context. This man here, one of the biggest slave traders of the all, he's normally known as Tipu Tin, and you will see pictures of him in the books on exploration at the time in East Africa. He controlled a huge area of the upper Congo. He went on long 10-year safaris. He travelled with an army of 10,000 people. He was a, quote, great man. His house is still there in Zanzibar. This photograph was taken by Kirk. It's never been shown, apart from now. It's never been used to date. And you can see him dressed as the, as the great chieftain, as the great Arab trader. In fact, his mother was an African, as often were the case. A lot of mixing between Arab and African in that part of the world at the time. But this gives you an idea of the kind of guys that Kirk had to deal with. The very fact that Kirk took this photograph tells you something of how he was integrated within that society. In Britain, things were changing. They were changing in curious ways. They were changing as much as anything else because of news that was coming through to the UK about this tremendous slave, acti slave trading activity that was happening in East Africa. This is not actually a real representation of what was going on. This is, if you like, propaganda. This isn't one of the missionary newspapers. Camels were not used in the villages of East Africa and Central Africa. But it gives you a sense of how evangelical and missionary activity was beginning to interest people in what was going on out there. Now, the government responded, the British government, and the British government responded in the way the British government loves to respond. It appointed a committee to look at this. And the committee sat in the House of Commons, and lots of very worthy, very good, and very noble people talked for many months about what they were going to do about slave trading in East Africa. And they reached no particular conclusion, except that it was a bad thing, and something must be done, and somebody must do it, but they weren't quite sure why, how, how, and tut tut. And they wrote a big report, which you can read, again, in these archives, it goes on for many pages, and it doesn't tell you very much. But out of it came one thing, this guy here. His statue's on the embankment. He's called Sir Bartle Frere. He was governor of Bombay, he came back to Britain, and he was a very self-important and a very self-regarding individual. He was a very able man too, and because he spent his life in India, he had a particular outlook on things, which was that when you do stuff, you tell people what to do. And they will do it. And if people have brown skins, and you tell them what to do, they better do it. And that was the way he operated. Anyway, so Bartle Frere came along to the committee, and he told them that he knew the answer, he knew what to do. 
So the government, looking for a way out, appointed Bartle Frere to go to East Africa to sort the situation out. And Bartle Frere, who'd retired, was looking for a big height to his career. Later on, he became a governor of one of the South African states. That's another story. He was looking to a height to his career. So off he went to East Africa. He went with a spectacular salary. He went with a spectacular title. He was called Special Envoy under the Great Seal, whatever the Great Seal is. And he went with lots and lots of people uh, and a nice fleet and a very big yacht. And off he went to East Africa. And on the way, he talked to the Pope. He talked to various ministers in Italy and in France. And he arrived in Zanzibar. And he, his fleet anchored outside Zanzibar. And he sent lots of messages to the Sultan. And he told the Sultan he'd got to stop slave trading. And he told the British government that that was what was going to happen. And to his surprise, the Sultan said, no. So Bartle Frere sent his uh, mission. He was sitting in his yacht there, and the Sultan's palace was opposite, but he refused to go and stay with the Sultan because that's not what one did in those days. So he sent another message. This went on for a month. And every time, very politely, Balgaf said, sorry, no. And Bartle Frere said, you've got to do it. And Balgaf said, we have a treaty with you. It goes back several years, and we're your ally. You can't do anything about this. Bartle Frere got really annoyed at this. So eventually, he, in high dudgeon, took off in his boat, sailed off to India, and he lost his temper. And on the way, he ordered, off his own bat, the fleet to blockade Zanzibar and kill the Zanzibar trade in ivory, in trade with the mainland, in everything, because he was very annoyed. The only problem was that was illegal. And unfortunately, the British officers of the Crown in Britain said, we have a treaty with France, dated from the 40s, to observe Zanzibar's sovereignty. So this is going to get us into real trouble with France as well. The cabinet in Britain, headed up by a gentleman called William Gladstone, panicked and said, we can't do this, but Bartle Frere, there was no, no email in those days. He was sitting on his boat halfway across the Indian Ocean, feeling very happy about things. So what you had was a diplomatic crisis. And the cabinet in Britain sent lots of cables out to Zanzibar to our friend John Kirk and said, what are you going to do about this? And Kirk said, don't worry, I'll sort it out. The cabinet panicked and sent several cables saying, but what are you going to do? He said, it's all right. We'll deal with it. What Kurt did was remarkable. I take you back to an early point. He was the one guy over the last five or six years that knew everybody in Zanzibar, knew everything, knew sometimes and literally where the bodies were buried. He had extraordinary influence in that place. He had extraordinary trust. To cut the story to its chase, there was a remarkable moment late in June 1873 when one night the Sultan sent a message to Kurt in his house and said... Would you come and see me? It was late. Kirk had people for dinner. People left, and Kirk went along the waterfront. He knew he was being followed. He got to the Sultan's palace, big, big stairs, still there. Went up to the big room, and there the Sultan was with all his advisors. And the Sultan said, the ruler of Zanzibar, Bagash, said, we trust you. We want your advice as to what the hell we do with this mess, because we're under a lot of pressure, but we don't really want to give up this slave thing, because it's pretty vital to the country. And Kirk looked around, he knew all the guys there, and he said, I think the time's come, you've got to give this up. And the Sultan and his advisors said, we can't do that. And Kirk then drew a deep breath, and he looked at all his advisors, one after the other, and he said, you know, I know what you've been saying, and I have a bet, I'm pretty sure, that if you refuse to give up slave trading, refuse to close the Zanzibar market, and there's an international crisis, which they've been discussing, and there's a blockade, and in the con as a consequence of this crisis, Zanzibar's trade is destroyed. I know that you guys are going to blame the Sultan as having provoked this. And they all looked away. And he said, but if that were to happen, I personally will be absolutely, make it absolutely sure that in this country, every one of you are held to blame. 
that the whole country knows that you signed up to this disastrous line of action. And because he knew them so well, and because they knew he knew the country so well, and because they knew he knew everybody there, the traders, the politicians, everybody in Zanzibar so well, they knew he would stand by that. He had the courage to stand by that conviction. At that point, the Sultan turned around and asked them all again, including the fundamentalist advisors. He said, are you still prepared to stand by your earlier action? And one after the other, every one of them said, no. They all gave it. Extraordinary moment. It's recorded. Extraordinary time. They pulled the treaty out of the cupboard, wherever it had been, and he got them to sign it that evening. And next day, the Zanzibar slave market was closed after hundreds and hundreds of years' existence. It was, I suggest, a remarkable moment. Kirk himself became the kind of person that the British Empire loved, a man of extraordinary influence in Zanzibar and in East Africa, and he used his knowledge to drive slave trading out of the whole region. He punished slave traders, he understood the economy of slave trading, he used his knowledge of the economy, he used his knowledge of the individuals, and he used brute force to expunge slave trading throughout the whole of East Africa. Now when I say East Africa, I mean the coast. His power and, his, and the Sultan's power did not extend deeply in that. He was successful, and I suggest he was probably somewhat arrogant towards the end of his life, and then in the, the mid-1880s, something happened which is now known as the scramble for Africa. The world moved on very quickly. A man who's well, rather well-known, called Count Otto von Bismarck, decided he wanted a piece of this. He wanted Tanzania, what was today called Tanzania, was then called Tanganyika, and he didn't like the influence Kirk had over the Sultan, and he put pressure on the British government to remove Kirk, which is what they did. Bismarck was rather important to the British government because of a conflict over Egypt, and Kirk was retired at the age of 55 and returned to his, his house that he bought in Sevenoaks, and he then spent the next 35 years in Sevenoaks in somewhat cantankerous retirement. Picture of him here, a canny, clever, rather robust old man, and I suggest you rather a great man. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>